Evening, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. We'll read the first nine verses this evening, but we'll focus our attention primarily on verses 7 through 9. And maybe a better title for the sermon than the one that I put in your bulletin uh, would be Money in Proper Perspective. Money in Proper Perspective. The reason I titled it that way is this, is if you and I, if we were sitting around a room having a discussion and I were to ask you to name me a verse in the Bible that references money, my guess is that one of, if not the first verse that would be named, would be something like, money's the root of all evil. In fact, this week I was reading one author who felt the need to clarify that the actual reading of that verse is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But the fact that we even misquote it like that uh, and other experiences that we have shows us that money is, it can be a challenging topic for us to talk about, especially as Christians. It, it carries a certain stigma with it, and it's, it's a topic that we kind of tend to avoid. Um, what Ray Ortland and his helpful commentary on Proverbs points out for us is that Proverbs actually overwhelmingly speaks positively about wealth and material possessions. It certainly does warn us against some of the pitfalls attendant on them, but it overwhelmingly paints a positive picture for how Christians might wisely use wealth and material possessions. And Agur, in his prayer, the only prayer in the book of uh, Proverbs, gives us a very refreshing picture of a perspective, a proper perspective on money. So how might you and I have that same type of renewed perspective on money as Christians? Let's go to the text and see, starting in verse 1 of Proverbs 30. The words of Agur, son of Jake, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see our need for Christ in this passage. 
Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see the supply that Christ brings? And would you help us to respond as we ought? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that so much of life is a matter of perspective. Even if you don't wear glasses or contacts and have never been to the optometrist, I think you can probably appreciate the experience of of going to the optometrist. You're sitting in a chair uh, in a dark room, and on the opposite wall are rows of letters and getting getting smaller as, as they descend. And the doctor slides a device in front of your face with different lenses. And he he asks you to start to read the letters. What's the smallest letters that you can read? And then he starts having you compare. Is number one better or flips it or is number two? Is it number two or number three? And he's flipping knobs and switching lenses. And and what he's doing is he's, he's dialing in your prescription to help you with obscured vision to see with 2020 clarity. Um, even if you have 2020 vision naturally, we all live our lives, we all view life through a set of lenses. We all view life through our own set of lenses. And those lenses are informed or made up by um, our deepest beliefs our experiences, and the context that we live in. Let me just give you a few examples with regard to money. So think about beliefs. There may be some of you here who uh, you don't exactly know why, but you have somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction to extreme wealth that, in, that views it as inherently uh, evil or bad. And on the other hand, you view, you view uh, poverty as inherently a more kind of righteous way of living. On the other hand, there are some of you who may view uh, wealth as a a blessing from the Lord and an indication of God's favor and and poverty as God's condemnation or his judgment. Think about our experiences. If you grow up in relative affluence, you may... uh, grow up and when you reach adulthood and have money of your own to be very, very mindful of your money, um, to, to view it as your source of security and, and control in the world. Uh, on the other hand, maybe you haven't learned proper stewardship and so you spend quite freely when you get older. See it just as a, a way to purchase fun experiences. Uh, on the other hand, if you've grown up where money was scarce and you're always worried about if there's going to be enough, that can shape your perspective too. Uh, you might, out of habit, just be very, very frugal uh, and always worried about uh, where the next thing is going to come from. Or when you have this newfound freedom and you move out and have money of your own, uh, you like to throw off that, that worry and, and spend freely. Think about your context. We, uh, we view life through what's available around us and uh, what other people, namely our peers, have or don't have. And a lot of times that can, uh, that can dictate our level of contentment. We can compare ourselves with each other. And it can even create some sense of entitlement. Uh, if they have that, then I should have it too. 
So just a few examples, and you can see that even different experiences and different beliefs can create different attitudes and different actions. And I think that what this proves to us, what this clarifies even more, is that we need a proper perspective on, on money, on wealth and material possessions. We need a biblical perspective. And what Agur says before he prays, is that every word of God proves true and we should never add to his words. He professes the infallibility and the sufficiency of Scripture. And what he's showing us is that we must learn to view wealth and material possessions through the lens of Scripture. Let that transform the perspective that we have. And really, there are two ways that we can do that. In this passage, if you'd like to have an outline, those would be the two points. He, Agar invites us in this prayer to look inward at our own hearts and to look upward at God's perspective. To look inward at our own hearts and to look upward at God's perspective. And we don't just look inward at our own hearts through our own knowledge or intellect or judgment. We have God's word that serves as a kind of mirror to show us if our hearts are lining up, are consistent with what God teaches. And so the very first thing we see is that this is, in fact, a matter of the heart. Money is not inherently good or evil. It's a matter of what our hearts are prone to do in relationship to it. Notice how Agur gets at it that in this prayer. When he asks God for neither poverty nor riches, his reason is, lest I or otherwise, I may have too much, And I will say, who is the Lord? Or I won't have enough. And so I'll steal and so dishonor God. He's showing that money and possessions have a powerful potential to sway our hearts and to cause us to act in another way. Remember just a few weeks ago when Brian preached to us about words from Proverbs. And he made the observation that scripture gives us is that what we say is an overflow of our hearts. And what we see here is another relationship to our hearts is that money and material possessions have a powerful propensity to sway our hearts and how we believe and how we act. In fact, uh, one writer points out uh, very insightfully, he says that Agar, he might have prayed to use the riches in the right way. God, give me riches and I'll use them the correct way. But he knows his frailty all too well. It's a matter of the heart. Calvin says it this way. He says, the one who cannot bear poverty is most likely to exhibit the opposite vice in the midst of prosperity. For example, the one who blushes over his cheap clothes will take pride in his expensive ones. The one unsatisfied with his simple meal will abuse better foods by his lack of self-constraint. And the one who struggles to endure his humble and ordinary status won't be able to restrain his arrogance if he obtains honor. Wealth and material possessions have a powerful potential to sway our hearts. This should give us a sense of humility about that. And, that, and that's exactly where Agur goes next. That this is not only a matter of the heart, it's a matter of humility. We don't really know anything else about Agur besides this prayer. But we do know from this prayer that he was very humble. Notice at the end of verse 1 and then 2 and 3 
how humbly he approaches God. I'm weary, O oh God. I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not understanding. I've not learned wisdom. And it's from that perspective of his own inadequacy that he then acknowledges the adequacy and the infallibility and the sufficiency of God's word. And notice also the humble way he approaches God to ask for this. Two things I ask of you. In his sermon on this text, H.P. Charles points out that this Agar's prayer is one of humble submission rather than arrogant presumption. It's one of humble submission rather than arrogant presumption. He's humbly coming before God, who he has acknowledged has all wisdom, which he does not have. And he's asking, would you, would you put, place these circumstances in my life? Now, what about us? Certainly when we go before God in prayer with regard to money, wealth, and material possessions, we're certainly... At least we wouldn't say out loud that we were so brash to demand something from God. We know better than to do that. But I think that if we look a little bit deeper, though the prayer be formed as a request to God, there is a certain level of of bitterness or, or anger or presumption underneath the surface. God, would you be pleased to give me this? But if you don't, there's this, this bitterness, this anger, this discontent that comes to the surface. So we look at our hearts. We find that wealth and material possessions have this strong ability to sway them. And so it's a matter of humbly becoming before the Father and truly requesting what he has to give us. Acknowledging that he has all wisdom and that we don't. And then finally, it's not only a matter of the heart and of humility. This is a matter of generosity. And that generosity begins with God. Do you notice how subtle this is? Two things I ask of you. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me. There is this acknowledgement on Agur's part that everything we have comes from God's hand. Everything we have comes from God's hand. I've found for myself personally that the, the, uh, the most helpful way for me to pray is to write out my prayers. And a few years ago, I was writing out a prayer with regard to uh, having something having to do with, with wealth and material possessions. And the, I wrote this phrase, which I thought sounded pretty good. Lord, please make me content with whatever I get. Please make me content with whatever I get. God will accept that one. That's a good one. And I was immediately convicted by the Holy Spirit. Because the latent belief in that prayer is that we just live in a world where we're subject to natural forces and the chances of fate. And whatever I get will be whatever it is. And God has no say in the matter. But make me content with it, Lord. Whatever I get. I scratched it out and tried again. Lord, make me content with whatever you are pleased to give. Everything that we have comes from God's hand. It's a matter of generosity. You know, there's a, a very close connection between the wisdom literature and creation. And if we look at creation, we can see this pattern of generosity was woven in from the very beginning. 
One writer that I was reading recently made this observation. He said that there was nothing, no force that acted on God that compelled him to create the world. He simply did it because he chose to, to share his goodness with the creation. So the very act of creation itself was one of generosity. And then when he created Adam and Eve, there was only one no in an entire garden of yes. One no. And they could have everything else for their good and their enjoyment. More than that, he laid down this pattern for us of six days of labor for seven days of provision. Later on, the psalmist will exclaim that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, which is proven beyond a doubt by Jesus Christ. Everything from creation to redemption to the new creation is, uh, is formed, is created by, is characterized by God's generosity to us. The whole of creation is one of generosity even after the fall. He has been giving to us from the very start. One writer puts it this way. He says, what must not he possess who possesses the possessor of all things? What must not he possess who possesses the possessor of all things? Or as someone else has put it much more simply, life is gift, not gain. God has shown us that pattern through creation, that life is about gift and not gain. And so what that does in us is it it fosters generosity. If God is a generous God who's made us in his image and has woven generosity into creation, this should foster generosity in us. And I want to give you one practical way to think about that. Because if you're a good rule follower like me and you read this passage, you've already found a a good rule to keep. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. And so we immediately think, well, what if I have excess? What if God gives me more than I need? Just a dime more than I need. I've got to follow the rule to the T. What do I do? What do I do with the excess? Now, what I can't do is give you a hard and fast rule for every single person in this room. It's a matter of stewardship between you and God with how you use what God has entrusted to you. But what I want to do is give you a few broad principles for how you might think about that. The first is goodness. So think about how this flips how we think about things. If we see something that we want and we start down the road of pursuing it, saving or, you know, getting rid of something else to get that thing, once we get it, where's our focus? It's on the thing that we've been pursuing. But if our uh, posture is one of gratitude with whatever God is pleased to give us that is a blessing, then it changes the, the object of our, of our gaze. We humbly accept rather than pursuing at all costs, and it points us to God's goodness. Calvin puts it this way. He says, we shouldn't avoid those things which seem to serve our pleasure rather than our necessity. For truly he created them for our good and not our ruin. All things are given in order that we may know their author. So we receive the gifts that God is pleased to give us in this life because he does truly give us more than we need. And we let them 
Point us to him and his goodness, his generosity, his fatherly care that that gives us things to make us happy. And then we might make a prayer like this. Lord, grow my trust in you in proportion to your generosity to me. Grow my trust in you in proportion to your generosity to me. And since God's generosity to us is ultimate and that he gave Christ to us, he gave us our very lives, then there's always room for us to grow in trust. So we can continue to make that prayer to the end of our lives. And what that does for us as people striving to be more generous is it takes away the, the, what would hinder us from being generous. Instead of looking at ourselves and worrying if we will have enough and so not giving generously, we have grown in our trust of a God who gives us things for our necessity and our pleasure, and we give generously away to other people. So his goodness, gratitude that breeds trust, and then generosity. So we look inward we find that it's a matter of the heart, a matter of humility and a matter of generosity. And then Agur teaches us through his prayer to look upward. And when we look upward, what it does for us, remember we said this is a matter of perspective, is it gives us a new reference point. It gives us a new perspective from which to look at and through which to look at wealth and material possessions. Notice how that comes out in this prayer. He says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Now, on the one hand, he's striving for sanctification. He says, I want to work out a right relationship with my money before I die, God. I want to glorify you in this. But also, it shows us this keen sense of his own mortality. He has a keen sense of his own mortality. He has an eternal perspective. There's a a parallel with Psalm 90. Moses prays, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. When we look at our lives in eternal perspective, rather than, will I have enough just this week or this month or for the next five years or for the kids to go to college and on and on and on and on, it gives us a whole new perspective on things. It gives us a new perspective on the, the gifts that we receive. And it also changes our perspective when we meet with those inevitable challenges where we, we wonder why God has brought this into our life and will we have enough. Uh, one poem that I have come to love very much uh, comes from Anne Bradstreet. She writes, it's called Verses Upon the Burning of Our House. And it's not a theoretical poem. It's autobiographical. She woke up in the middle of the night, she recounts in the poem, to screams, and she barely escapes the burning house with her life. And so she gets out and she writes down these words. Then coming out, behold a space, the flame consumed my dwelling place. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so was just. It was his own. It was not mine. Far be it that I should repine. He might of all justly bereft, but yet sufficient for us left. What's refreshing to me about her poem is what she says next. It's very long, so I'm not going to read it all. 
But she begins to let us in on her own heart. After she has made this prayer, she begins to sort through all the wreckage and the ashes and all the things that she once loved and the memories that she made here. And she finds herself devolving into a type of cynicism and depression. But then through the Holy Spirit, he picks up her eyes, helps her to look upward, and she regains her eternal perspective on this house that she loved that is now burned. And she writes this, Then straight I began my heart to chide, and did thy wealth on earth abide? Did fix thy hope on moldering dust? The arm of flesh did makes thy trust? Raise up thy thoughts above the sky that dunghill mists away may fly. Thou hast a house on high erect, framed by that mighty architect, a price so vast as is unknown, yet by his gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell, my pelf, farewell, my store. The world no longer let me love. My hope and treasure lies above. When we have that type of perspective, it changes everything about how we view these momentary afflictions and challenges that we face relative to our wealth and material possessions. The Lord Jesus said, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's given us assurance of this, this house on high erect, framed by that mighty architect, that we might not count our possessions here of so much consequence and eternal perspective. The second reference point that Agur gives us through this prayer is God's glory. So an eternal perspective and God's glory. Notice that the reason he is asking for neither poverty nor riches is because of the way he's afraid that he might respond to it and the way it will affect his relationship with God. Otherwise, I may have too much and say, who is the Lord? Or I might steal and so profane the name of God. As one writer points out, stealing, in this case, would bear false witness to who God is. It would basically say to the world, my God can't be trusted to provide for me. And Agur does not want his God to be profane, to be dishonored by the way he relates to his material possessions. And so he says, don't even, don't even give me the temptation, Lord. Just give me enough so that I won't be tempted towards arrogance or towards dishonesty in stealing. So what about us? What, what's our natural reference point when it comes to wealth and material possessions? Well, oftentimes it can just be our own comfort. We, we want to be able to create a comfortable life for ourselves. Our children can be a, a strong influential factor. We want to create a life for our children that we envision. All sorts of things that would probably be as many as there are people in the room, but we all have our own natural reference point for how we view material possessions. And is it God's glory? Will he be glorified by my use of these and the way my use of these bears witness to the world? Or is it is the bottom line, so to speak, simply what I get out of it? We might pray like this, Lord... Simply lead me to the place you're calling me. And once he's done that, then we have the decision to make 
If God is calling me here, does it require me to adjust my standard of living so that I can glorify God in living that life? Or does it require me to trust the Lord to provide what I need to be able to do that? Is God's glory our our first point of reference or is it our own comfort? Finally, the final reference point that Agur gives here is our calling. So an eternal perspective... God glorified with how we use it and the calling that God has given us. Notice, Agur says, neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Or otherwise translated, translated uh, my portion or my daily bread. Notice what is needful for some may be different uh, dependent on your circumstances in life and dependent on your calling. The person with, with eight children needs a bigger house and a bigger car than the person with one. The person with 100 employees needs certain resources to be able to give them uh, dignity and, and work that gives them life than another person. So we all have a unique calling from the Lord that dictates our, uh, what we need to be faithful to him. And that really is the crux of the issue. That if God has called you to it, then you can be assured that God will give you everything you need to be faithful to it. If God has called you to it, you can be assured that he will give you everything you need to be faithful to it. And this this really guards us against comparison, doesn't it? We most often look at our peers, the people whose lives look the most similar to us as age and stage, what have you. And we, we measure ourselves up. We judge ourselves based on what they have and what we have in comparison. And that can have a powerful effect in dictating our level of contentment. But if we reframe it, not what do they have and what do I have, but what has God called them to and what has God called me to, then we can ask God the question, is this something that I merely desire or is it needful for me to be faithful to what you've called me to? Is it something that I merely desire because it would be nice and because others have it and it would give me a certain level of of status? Or is it needful in order for me to be faithful to what you've called me to? This totally reframes it for us. Tonight, as we come to the table we have an immediate opportunity to apply the perspective that Agur's prayer has given us. We can look inward. We can confess our sins in the way that our own hearts don't match up to God's perspective in Scripture and the way that we do not relate well to wealth and material possessions. And then we can look upward to a God who has said, I will provide everything that you need and I've given you my son, body and blood, to prove it to you beyond a doubt. And not only that, but I've given you this as a kind of spiritual sustenance to help you to live faithfully throughout the week in whatever I've called you to do. So as you come to the table tonight, look inward at your hearts. Receive the forgiveness that we have in Christ. That though he was rich, he became poor so that you might become rich 
towards God because you are forgiven and loved and his son. And then look upward at the one who gave all for you and who gives you everything you need to be faithful to your call this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your generosity towards us such that there is always room for us to look back and say thank you. And so I just pray, Lord, that that would be our attitude tonight. Would we look back at the innumerable ways in each of our lives that you have been generous to us and shown yourself good? And would that dictate the way that we look at and use our material possessions. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.